are at 90.1 FM in Houston and 89.5 FM in Galveston, Texas, as well as everywhere in the world at www.kpft.org. I'm very pleased that you joined us. Whole Mother offers an opportunity to learn about ways to become better parents and better people. It's not about one right way to do things, but about finding the right way to do things for your family. I hope you can take a deep breath and drop your shoulders and enjoy our time together. So welcome to all of our regular listeners um, that have been listening for a long time. Um, I got a note from someone very special who said, I know you just moved and we're going to find you. Just just wait on us. We're coming. Um, so I'm, I was grateful for that encouragement and, and grateful to our listeners for being there. And a very special welcome to those of you who are who might be listening for the first time and those who are listening at kpft.org. Uh, we invite you all to visit wholemothershow.com. We have a wealth of shows in our archives over 12 years. I think it's close to 15 now on a variety of topics. Of course, we have everything birth, uh, birth planning and how to choose a provider and what's it between a midwife and OB and lots and lots of birth stories told by women just like you. Um, some of them are stories of healing where there was trauma in a first birth and that second birth came around and and power and healing and people's voices were restored and some of them are fun um, like the baby born in a Kroger parking lot at 3 a.m that was an interesting that was interesting and unexpected so those are there to listen to uh, whole mother is very proud to have presented uh, almost right at four years is like three and a half four years of a series, a once a month series, which we called the addiction series. Um, we've ended the addiction series, but we have not interested, uh, not ended our interest in our dedication to spreading the word about addiction. And, and that's what we'll be doing today. We're, my guest is Julie Genova, who's been on the show with us before. She is a delight and we're so grateful to have her back. Head out to the archives and listen to some of our shows. There's a wealth of information there. Whole Mother Show. Dot com. The other thing that we want to make sure to let you all know is that free radio is not free. This show is, or we as the host of the show, are responsible for fundraising. And KPFD does regular fundraising sort of seasons throughout the year. But what we're required to fundraise is $1,400 per quarter. We encourage our listeners, if you've been touched by the show, um, if you've shared your story here, if there's something you learned here that um, blessed you in some way, that helped you down the road in some way or made your day better, we'd be grateful if you go out to kpft.org and uh, do a little pledge there. You'll be able to find the show and a way to give in the name of Whole Mother so that we can stay on the air. Pat and I, Pat, who is our regular host, uh, we are really proud of her. She is off having her life today. Um, what Both of us love hearing from you. So if you have show ideas, if you have questions, if you would like to know more about one of our guests, please reach out to us at wholemothershow at gmail.com. If you'd like to reach me directly, you can do so at debbiehall.doula at gmail.com. So drug overdose deaths are at um, record levels. Uh, they increased with pandemic, we know. Um, we know that 
more than 93,000 people die from overdoses in that area every year. Um, That's more than 250 people dying every day, every day, every six minutes, someone beloved is lost. And that number doesn't include people who don't die from an overdose, but are still lost to their addiction, lost to their families um, in a, in a really dark place. Addiction is not a respecter of academic achievement or socioeconomic status or nice neighborhoods or gender or race or how much a family loves a person suffering from substance abuse. Addiction is killing real people, beloved people. If a mother's or father's or child's or spouse's love could save someone from addiction, we'd be losing far fewer people. Addiction threatens others who are doing the hard work to save themselves and their loved ones and others so bound by the disease that they're too paralyzed to seek help. So many people are left suffering. It is a cunning and baffling disease. And so, so many people are are suffering. Whole Mother wants to inspire conversation around the issue. We're really proud of the work we did on the addiction series. And we're proud to have this show today. We're not talking about it enough. Um, the the Center for Recovery here in Houston says, you know, someone who needs us. Everyone knows someone who needs help with addiction. And that's what we're hoping uh, to, to do with this, with these conversations is sort of raise awareness and point somebody in the direction of hope. When we began the addiction series, it was dedicated to three young people that my family knew who were lost. They died from their addiction. And, uh, to those young people and their mothers. And since we began our series, we've added other names to our list of people that Pat and I knew. Um, Each show in in our series and today's show are dedicated to Sarah, Sean, Judah, Nick, and Garrett. May you rest in peace. And to Kim, Pam, Lori, Leslie, and Lisa, their mothers, may you find peace and comfort as we remember your children. I want to welcome our guest, Julie Denofa, today. Uh, She began her career um, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and today works as the president of Positive Recovery Centers. She has over 30 years of related work experience in medical, clinical operations, and in creating a culture of success. I can tell you that she is warm and inviting and encouraging and started our conversation with the most lovely uh, compliment this morning, culture of success. Um, In the early 1990s, she began in Philadelphia as a certified addictions registered nurse with her specialty in substance use disorders and psychiatry. Her extensive clinical background, coupled with her business acumen, had been a large part of her ability to developing and implementing high-quality programs across the country. Her dedication is also evidenced by her volunteerism with Addiction Policy Forum, Houston Area Treatment Providers, and she's an advocate for the Texas Peer Assistance Program for Nurses a community partner with numerous other entities as well. Julie's a former board member for the Texas Association of Addiction Professionals and is dedicated to helping others heal, nurtures growth and self-awareness, and will tell you that her biggest joy is being mom to her three adult children, Chelsea, Gia, and Desi. Thank you so much for being with us this morning, Julie. My gosh, it's my pleasure. Um, I, I love I love the show. I love what you're up to. I love the awareness that you are bringing to the addiction space. And I I really love how you speak to it. So from somebody that works in addiction medicine to someone who is 
out there trying to inspire people to have more conversations, you're nailing it. So thank oh, you for thank being you. who you are. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. It, this is, um, uh, so I'll just tell you the story. I, we lost these three kids and there's nothing to be done. There's, uh, what can I do? And I have this little voice. And so I went to Pat and said, Pat, please, can I just do, I just really want to do a show on addiction. How would it be if I did like three shows on it? Can I just do three shows on addiction? And after we did those first few shows, Pat's like, I think you need to keep going. And so we made that once a month series, which, um, we we are just really really proud of it's one of the things we're most proud of uh that we've done on the show so thank you for that absolutely and i i feel like i have a special connection i met pam uh when my youngest was at university of houston which is where oh, sarah had yes. attended and so you know the universe just speaks to us and and knowing her and then getting connected with you and being able to be on the show in some small way. I think that I'm honoring Sarah today also. So thank you for that opportunity. Um, we're grateful. These, these kids, these kids, and they're not the only ones. They're just the ones in my tiny little corner of the world. It's, it's, it's scary and it's heartbreaking. And, and so let's talk about it. It's been quite a while since we did that first show in our, in our addiction series. So let's start from the get go what is addiction? What does it mean? How is it defined? So, Debbie, when we're talking about drug addiction, because obviously there's drug addiction and then there's also addiction, which could be behavioral addictions. But sure. today I know we're focusing on substance use disorder, which that belongs to um, a substance use related disorder is a chronic and relapsing brain disorder that features drug seeking and drug abuse despite the harmful effects. It's a form of addiction that changes the brain circuitry in such a way that the brain's reward system is compromised. Your brain just wants more. Uh, the neuropathways in the brain are changed. So a lot of times people, parents, loved ones, like think it's like, why can't they just stop? They should have more, you know, self-will. They should know how much we love them. And like you said in the opening, like if love was something that would save people from addiction, there would be a whole lot less overdose, a whole lot less, whole lot less people harmed by addiction. So it's because it changes the brain circuitry, particularly when we talk about opiate use disorder or alcohol use disorder, it changes functional consequences for stress management and self-control. There's damages to the functions of the organs involved that that can persist throughout a lifetime that can cause crisis. And this is alcohol, heroin, pills, Xanax, like all of it. And a lot of times what happens is people think of addiction in a way that it's the person that's under the bridge, that's mm. the drunk, that is homeless, that is whatever. And that's just not the case. And you know, also, like, if we look at it, too, like drug addiction can arise from the use of medications that are prescribed from a physician for various reasons. And so I think that that's important that we talk about prescription um, drug abuse as well. So when we're looking at addiction. So you said a lot of things there. I want to unpack just a tiny bit. I will tell you that it was really hard for me even though I wanted to, it was really hard for me to get my head around the idea of, uh, of this as a disease. It just was, stop, what are you doing? I mean, why are you doing this? That whole thing that you said, um, 
I really struggled with that as an, and I don't think it's uncommon um, that we just want, you know, family members and loved ones. You can see it's, it's, you can see what's happening here. You can see the fallout. You can see the damage. Um, do lots of families struggle with that? I mean, I would think it's a common struggle. It is very common and and the space, you know, addiction medicine and kind of the learning that has occurred in the last 10, 15 years has been huge. Like looking at it from the neurobiological um, way of looking at it and just the, all the research that's going in through SAMHSA and various organizations that do a lot of research, we've come a long way. And for that, I'm grateful because when we start treating it like a disease, Mm we can really have a much larger impact. Too many people look at it as a moral issue or they weren't raised in the right family or, you know, again, with the, you know, if they knew how much I love them or if they loved me, they would stop, right? So addiction's not just a physical dependence on a substance, but it's a psychological one. Um, It's a disease that affects not only the individual, but also their loved ones. Like you're bringing that in now. It it tears families apart. It destroys relationships. It shatters life, but it's also really important to remember that addiction is not a choice, that it is a disease that needs to be treated with care, with understanding, and that for those who need help, it takes strength. It takes courage. It takes bravery to ask for help and to be able to overcome addiction and begin living a life of recovery. I would say especially difficult to ask for help in a climate, a society where we're, like you said, we picture addicts as the people who live under the bridge and, you know, pushing a shopping cart down the street, people who are homeless. And, um, but addiction doesn't, doesn't work that way. It's in nice neighborhoods and nice schools and nice families and good marriages, uh, you know, can be, it, it's not, a respecter of all those things. And that was also, uh, I think that's a little piece that people have difficulty understanding that it's far more common than we think that it's out there. Do you, do you know current numbers, what kind of numbers we're looking at? In terms of the number of people that are affected by drug and alcohol use. Mm -hmm. So you're going to catch me off guard because I'm I'm not like a huge number and statistics person. I'm just not because Mm -hmm. I, I really come and approach things from it's happening everywhere and it's the hidden secret. Um, And I don't want to quote or misquote, but I will tell you that that is often what many will say is that, oh, not in my family or Mm -hmm. that's somebody else's child or Mm -hmm. I'm not even people that are seeking help in treatment will kind of look around a room and say, I'm not really like them. My life has not fallen as far as theirs. And we begin comparing ourselves to other people in the room who have an addiction issue just like you the, you do. And, you know, I'm not like them because I haven't lost my job or I'm not like them because I haven't been arrested. You know, it the level of one's bottom is mm-hmm. is very different for each person. And, you know, one of the things that I say is, why do we need to hit bottom? Why can't we raise the bottom? So that, you know, we can get people help faster, sooner, you know, decrease the stigma, make it so that we're talking about it, make it so that people aren't afraid to ask for help. And, you know, it's your nursery school teacher. It is the high school teacher that is actually tying up and shooting dope in the bathroom in between classes. It's everywhere. You know, it, it just is. 
It just And I is. don't want to be picking on teachers because I said nursery school teacher and, no, no. because it is everywhere. It is. It's in church. It's in um, nice neighborhoods. And, I, you know, almost everybody has that uncle or that cousin that they, you know, just see twice a year or something. And that's they're high functioning. They haven't hit rock bottom. They're just a, a heavy drinker. You know, they're a heavy drinker. And and that's it's not always, but it's a red flag. This could be a place where there's a problem. Um, one of the things that's striking to me in what you said is that, you know, that walking into one of the rooms and saying, I'm not like these other people, that because we're talking about a brain disorder, it's not like diabetes or cancer or, I don't know, lung disease. It's about your brain lies to you when you are in Absolutely. the midst of your addiction does. And I will also tell you that the management of addiction, um, for those that work in the space, you know, it is the only disease that our clients or our patients will tell us how to treat them, right? Like, oh, I'm going to not need to take this, but you're going to need to medicate me with this. And, you know, and I- I'm good there. I don't need that. And it's it really is one of the only areas of medicine that, you know, probably addictionologists, um, have to hear from the patients telling them how they need to be treated and which medication should be used and the dosage and what's going to work and what's not going to work. Cause I know our clients would not, our patients would not go to an oncologist and tell the oncologist what type of chemo to use or, you know, diabetic management, not, you know, how much insulin they need to be taking. Right. It is that the brain starts kind of tricking us into, we really know what's best and we can handle it. And I just needed to get away from it. And so sometimes it's really hard for people to follow suggestions in early recovery Mm. because there is a lot of shame and guilt for the person who's abusing substances and they come into treatment and they are devastated. They're like at their lowest point. They're, they're feeling so much shame, so much guilt. They, they can't identify, you know, any strengths they maybe they're at a place that is so dark that they feel like they would be better off dead or the people around them would be better off dead without them but we are able to instill hope we are able to talk about the solution because there is a solution and that comes in a variety of ways when people start to kind of reclaim that hope kind of that way of being of like maybe a little self-sufficient they get a little break from the substance of choice um, they immediately start thinking that they can handle it and they have to get back to life, right? And sometimes it takes that break of removing yourself from the situation in order to really start looking at the why. You know, mm. coming off of substances, like, you know, some people need to be detoxed from certain substances. So detoxification, you know, certainly addresses the physiological piece of uh, of the uh, disorder, um, it doesn't address the why it doesn't address mm. what am I trying to fill here? What hole am I trying to fill? What am I trying to, why am I trying to make myself feel all the, you know, feel different all the time? You know, Debbie, I will say that, you know, sometimes, you know, we we talk about addiction and we say the opposite of addiction is connection. We talk about addiction in a way that it's just the ineffective Um, pursuit of happiness, right? People are looking Mm. for something. And I I think there's a lot of truth in that. And I I know that when I start talking about this, I get super passionate about it. And so we may have a lot to unpack from that. So let me pause for a minute. I see that uh, 
for our listeners, I can see Debbie's like her, the wheels are spinning. She's got questions. Yeah. So, I mean, so, so unpack that, that part just a bit more. Just the, the part about. About um, stepping away and, and how stepping away from the chemical or whatever, you know, substance, how the brain starts to lie and say, you're better, you don't need it. I guess kind of what I'm asking is if I'm looking at a loved one who is using and I feel worried about them and I, I'm not sure it's universal, but I suspect it's close that if I go to them and say, listen, I'm worried about how much you're drinking or I'm worried about what you're using or doing. I'm seeing these things that the response is always going to be like you said, I've got it. I, the brain is saying, I've got it. It's You don't need to worry. I'm not like these other people. It's it's not a problem. What do how do I know where the line is as if it's me? How can I know where the line is? And if I'm using, am I able to see the line? Um, or is that the beginning of addiction when I can't see the, I don't know, the line anymore? You know, is it too much? And how do I look at a loved one and know, have we crossed that line? It is a gray area, right? Like when does it cross into just kind of experimentation, into uh, abuse, into dependence, right? Like for sure. So I think there's a, a lot to look at, right? And it's it's how it's impacting your life. If you can't get through the day or through a couple of days without using a substance, there's definitely an issue there. If you can't live your life without using substances, there's an issue there. When we start having negative consequences related to the use of whatever the substance is, um, then, then there's issues there. Because at some point, pers- people who do not have a problem know that I'm going to have a glass of wine because I'm driving home tonight. The person who can't stop after one glass of wine and continues to go, drives, gets a DWI, negative consequence, and then continues to do the same thing over and over, repeating the same patterns over and over, despite the negative consequences, there's a problem there. And so if you think someone that you love is in trouble, Obviously, the first thing that you have to do is reach out to them in in a caring and supportive way. And sometimes that's hard because as the loved one, you may have already gone through the ringer with this person. So approaching them from a place of love is, is often hard because the relationship may already be damaged. There may be a lot that's already transpired. People in addiction really hurt the people around them, you know, and so you know, when you think someone that you care about is in trouble, sometimes it's hard to come at it from a loving perspective. But you're right, you do need to express your concern and in, in starting the conversation with them by just telling them that I love you and I care about you. And this is why I want to have this conversation, you know, being gentle, being compassionate, and letting them know that I think we have a problem here. Um, or I think that you should know I'm worried about you which I I just have to say again, is not like other diseases. Because if I see that you have uh, cancer, or I see that you have this cough that won't go away, and I can say I'm worried about that cough, why don't we see what a doctor has to say about that? Um, You may get that person who's, you know, stubborn about doesn't like doctors and doesn't want to go to the doctor, whatever. But it's not, it's not damaging a relationship there aren't already trust hasn't been broken um in the way it builds relationships right it almost builds relationships 
Yes. Yeah. A very, very different. So, okay. So let's say that um, I see someone I love using and I'm worried about it. Um, and I, I mean, I, truth be told, I think most people wouldn't even know I need to trust this person with love. I'd probably be irritated. You, you got that DWI, you're missing work, whatever thing is, you know, going on. Um, I'd be, I'd be irritated about that. I wouldn't be approaching with love and care. And do you think there's an issue? Um, I've heard of uh, every scene intervention on, you know, television, because, you know, television usually depicts things. So realistically, that was sarcastic. Um, what would that look like? How, where would I go? Who would I talk to if I needed help during that process? And what does it look like in real life and not in a 30 minute show on TV? Sure. Um, some of those shows actually do a really good job of kind of representing like what can happen. So I Mm -hmm. I do want to say that, um, I think by the time we get to, um, as a family or, you know, a friend of someone who needs help by the, I think by the time we get to like feeling like we need outside help, you've already, gone to them in a way, either in with love, maybe sometimes pissed, you know, mm-hmm. whatever that looks like, you've already tried something because you don't, most families are not calling an interventionist without having some level of own intervention happening in, in the household. Um, usually, you know, from a family perspective, there's ultimatums that are given. Like if you don't stop drinking, this is going to happen. If you don't stop using drugs, this is going to happen. I'm not going to give you any more money. I'm not going to, you know, you're going to have to move out. And so often the relationship has been um, toxic for so long yeah. that we put out these ultimatums and then don't follow through with them. And the person who's abusing substances just continues on going because they don't believe you're going to do what you say you're going to do anyways. So sometimes it is um, imperative to bring someone in that is skilled. Um, they're called interventionists. There are many different types of interventionists out there. So there's all kinds of um, different types of interventionists that, you know, do use different approaches. And so it's really a matter of what's comfortable for you and your family as to what type of intervention you think is going to work best for you. Um, but you can, you know, the Houston Council on Recovery is a great resource in Houston for contacting them um, for referral sources for interventionists. Um, they also have some great family programs, as do some of the other treatment centers in the Houston area. Um, But for your listeners, I think that the Council on Recovery is a great place to start. When you um, hire an interventionist, they can be costly. So sometimes Mm. they can be cost prohibitive. Um, However, they do a lot of work with the family. A good interventionist will do a lot of work with the family, free work, before the intervention ever even happens. Um, They do the pre-work to gain all the information that they need to do about your loved one to be able to figure out the best ways to support this person and guide them into treatment. Certain um, certain things that they're looking for is leverage to be used mm. um, during the actual intervention um, and then guiding the family um, through the process. You know, some families um, will use letters um, or have something written that the interventionists will kind of read through and, and look and approve kind of before the intervention actually happens. Um, And it's really kind of about going in and being able to identify what you're willing to stating that you love the person, what you're willing to do to help them get help, what you're no longer willing to tolerate, and that we're offering you help today. Would you be willing to go? 
Now, there's a whole lot more to it than just sure. that. Like I took an intervention down to a very short, very succinct way of being. Um, because at that point, there's not, there's really not a whole lot of room for negotiating. We've already identified that this person needs help. Mm. They've done enough enough damage to themselves, to, to, you know, to everyone that we're at this point. And the interventionist is actually there to support the family as well as the person who suffers from addiction. And, and they really need the buy-in that you're going to say what you mean and mean what you say, because sometimes, and I, you know, people will use the word enmeshed. Um, people will say that they're so codependent. Um, I think it's an overuse of love, right? Mm. That we, we love someone so much that we don't want them to see, see them in pain. We don't want to see them. And we're afraid the family is so afraid of what might happen if you change the script. So that's why it's really helpful of having someone who is a professional, someone who's trained, someone that can really get in there and support the family and the person. Um, I think interventionists do a fabulous job, but the other part that families need to know is that not every intervention works. Mm. The person using substances can say, no, I'm not going to go. No, I'm not willing. And at that point, you know, a good interventionist continues to work with the family, continues to support the family and help guide them on their own recovery journey. And that's vital. It's vital that the families are getting help as well. Again, here's another place where addiction as a disease is so different from other diseases. So an intervention sounds to me, I just keep hearing the word boundaries. It's about, I told you to stop. I asked you to stop. I begged and pleaded and cried with you to stop. And whatever behavior or use is not stopping. So I'm going to have this person come in and help me set reasonable boundaries. And like you said, the family, if I have, I don't know, diabetes and I continue to, you know, eat ice cream and Oreos, uh, my family can ask me not to do that and watch me slowly. I don't know, decline, die Um, with substance use. The consequences I think are much more obvious and much more, I don't know, quick and much more effect. They're affecting other people. It's wrecking lives. Um, And so it sounds to me where a family might think that an intervention is all about this person who's using. It's really about all of us. It's about, we all need to change the dance. Like you said, changing the script and, and how, when you change the dance, then that might be something that brings change in this person that we love who clearly needs help um, and change. So it's about support, not only for a person who's, you know, lifting a glass or putting a needle in their arm. It's also about family and the support that families need to change the environment, to change the dynamics, to make, to affect change. Right. Because the family and and I was the family member, you know, I just want to, you know, for the, for your listeners, I was that person and mm. I worked in addiction medicine and I was that person. Right. And I did the dance. I, you know, I would, uh, sometimes I was really good with the boundaries and other times mm. I wasn't. And, you know, and I have a ton of experience when it's happening in your own life, in your own situation. Sometimes it's difficult to apply all the knowledge that you have to yes. your own self, but like, what happens is, is that you play a part in it. Like I played an active role in the dynamic that was occurring. And even though that, you know, I may have felt sometimes overwhelmed and powerless, you know, and sometimes helpless, right. I wasn't, 
you know, and it just took some beautiful people who were in my life to remind me, like you, you go in there and do this with other families all the time. Like here's where you're at. Like you're, you know, yes, you're, you families experience the whole range of emotions, right? Anger, sadness, frustration, as, as you're witnessing your loved one's behavior deteriorate, like they're slipping further and further away from you. Like children of addicted parents, like they, they might feel abandoned. They might feel Mm. neglected. They feel insecure, you know, as their parents struggle to maintain their addiction, you know, as a spouse, you can feel betrayed. You can feel lonely. You can feel frustrated, you know, and their addiction, your partner's addiction can consume your life. And so this is a family disease. We talk about it, but I think that, you know, people want to put it on the person who, like you said, is taking the drink or smoking or putting the needle in their arm, but it it's difficult to talk about because there is still a lot of shame around it. And, you know, people still want to have the, you know, white picket fence picture Mm. in their head of what their family was supposed to look like. But when we talk about it openly and we remove the judgment and we remove the rejection and we openly communicate to reduce the conflict, like there are ways to move this forward and instilling hope in the family is really important. And I think that, you know, using or or having a, a support network for the family is vital um, and and it helps guide the care that their loved one gets. Um, I think you hit on an important point. One of the things that I learned through my own experience and my experience with the addiction series is that um, if I'm in a family where, or I have a loved one that is using, that loved one does not have to change in order for me to get better that I can get better if my loved one is using, even if they choose to continue down a path or not even choose, even if they continue down the path, if their disease carries them further, Um, there's, there's hope as long as they're alive, as long as they're alive, there's hope that we can reach them and change them, but they don't have to change in order for me to, is that what you're saying? Is that kind of, did I touch on it? Oh yeah. You, you, you nailed it. That's absolutely a hundred percent. Correct. But so often people have difficulty separating out. Um, I'm doing some work and and something that one of my teachers just used um, recently is I am, you are right. Like I am Julie, you are Debbie. I don't have to take on all of what you're up to. Right. Um, I can love you. I can, you know, support you. I can do all those things, but sometimes I need to do that from a distance. So mm. I'm that blended beautifully with what you said um, from someone that I'm learning from today. I love that. I am, you are. Um, and so when a family member whose brain is not befuddled by, you know, drugs or substances sees that this is just not, I, you know, I need a way out. I can get it. Even if my loved one doesn't, that's important to know. So let's say whether we get an interventionist or not, however we decide to do it, we've gotten connected with some help. What would treatment look like? You mentioned detox for some things. Can you talk a little bit about what detox would look like when it might be required and you know how that, how long does that take even before we can start digging in the real and doing the real work? Sure. 
So, you know, first and foremost, you um, need to have an assessment done by either a licensed chemical dependency counselor, nursing part of it to kind of look at the medical aspects of it. Um, multiple levels of folks within the state of Texas are licensed that can actually do a very thorough, comprehensive assessment of kind of what substances you're using, the amount, the frequency, how long you've been using them. Take a look at the co-occurring um, either medical or psychiatric issues. And then based on that, kind of put a plan of care together of, of what level of care is going to be most appropriate for you. So there are things that you actually need to be physiologically detoxed from. So alcohol, while it's readily available and, you know, it, it's legal, um, it can be the most life-threatening detox. And people Which don't is, think that. Exactly. It's, it's just there. You can buy it at the grocery store. So it must be safer than the drugs I buy on the street, right? That's like the thinking. Yes, exactly. And it's not because you can have you, 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 you can have a horrible detox from alcohol. It can cause hypertensive crisis. It can cause seizures, which seizures can then lead to respiratory arrest and cardiac arrest. And so we really have to be mindful of, you know, alcohol use and how much and how frequent. Um, then we also need to look specifically at the classification of drugs called benzodiazepines which are also often prescribed by physicians mm. doing not trying to cause harm to someone trying to help someone who suffers maybe from anxiety or has difficulty sleeping or just managing the day-to-day -day stress that comes right with life. Um, and so those folks would absolutely need a detox also depending upon the amount that they're using because there's a physical dependence on benzodiazepines even if you're taking it at the prescribed amount after 21 days of taking a prescribed amount of benzodiazepines, your body is dependent on it. Wow. 21 so, days, alcohol, three weeks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. So alcohol use disorder, benzo um, use disorder, which is like Ativan, Xanax, Valium, you know, those type of drugs. Very commonly then, prescribed drugs. I mean, these are, everybody knows these. These are very commonly prescribed. Absolutely. And then, of course, those who have opiate use disorder, whether that's someone who is using heroin or pain pills, um, they also need a detox. It's not as life threatening as alcohol use or benzodiazepine use wow. disorder in terms of the actual withdrawal. Mm -hmm. Right. Because you opened up your show, Debbie, talking about the number of um, people that we lose to overdose. And usually when people are talking about overdose, it is related to opiate use disorder. Um, and now with like fentanyl being such a thing, um, people are dying all the time, not not even in, not even looking for that. Like they're not like, let me just see how much I can shoot up. If I make it till tomorrow, great. If I don't, oh, well, they're taking pills that have fentanyl in it that they don't even know has fentanyl in it. Or they're using heroin that has fentanyl in it that they don't necessarily know that has in it has it in it. And so we're losing a lot of people to um, the addition of fentanyl being added to substances. Um, illegal. So scary. Um, it's so scary to me that you get these drugs from someone who is, I don't know, have a good way to say it, not a nice person. This is not a person with your best interest at heart. And it may have something in it that can kill you dead. Just, just like that. And the other thing that I do want the listeners to hear, and then I'll talk a little bit more about detox, is that fentanyl is being put in pills that are being pressed, right? There are people are making pills like in 
base. Well, we don't have basements in Houston, but like in second bedrooms or wherever (laughs) they're making them in store warehouses here. I'm trying to create this visual, but, and they're pressing pills to make them look exactly like Xanax or to make them look exactly like another type of pill. It's really hard for people to tell the difference. It's difficult for the DEA to tell the difference or for physicians to tell the difference just by looking at them. They're laced with fentanyl and you could have someone that is, yes, I'll take a Xanax because I'm feeling so stressed out. I just need to take the edge off. And it's laced with fentanyl. And they had no intention of ending their life. And they're gone. And I can't tell you how many how many times I've heard that story over the last year specifically, but a little bit longer. But the last year, it's just increased significantly. And that's just mind boggling to me. Like, you know, and so I, you know, I have kids, adult children, and I am always telling them like, if you need to take something because you feel a certain way, then we need to talk about it. And you need to go to the doctor and you need to get them prescribed and they need to come from CVS or from whatever pharmacy you go to, because when somebody offers you something, you don't know what they're offering you. And they don't know necessarily that they're offering you something that has fentanyl in it. So, you know, sometimes it's, it is, I don't want to say innocent, but sometimes it almost is, right? Yes. Yes. Well, they were looking for to feel better or get a high and not die. And they got something they didn't expect. Yes. Yeah, for sure. So for detox, you know, there's a lot of treatment centers in the Houston area that, you know, offer detoxification services. Depending upon the substance that you're using and the amount of substance that you're using will depend on how long someone is in detox level of care. Um, generally speaking, most people can go through a detox of any substance between five and seven days. Could be a little shorter if they're not using quite as much and they don't have any co-occurring medical issues or concerns. Could be a little longer if they're using a lot of um you know, benzodiazepines that have like a longer half-life, right? So Mm -hmm. you have to kind of know what you're being detoxed from. And that's the job of the professionals that can treat your loved one um, to get them through that detox portion. Um, My thought on that is, is that if someone needs detox level of care um, and they don't have a lot of knowledge about recovery or what's next, that Engaging them in a longer length of stay in, in in something else just other than detox is really important. It's important for a couple of reasons. It's important because just because you're detox physically from the medication up here hasn't caught up yet. So for our listeners, I pointed to my head. So psychologically, mm-hmm. we haven't figured out how to get through life without using our what made us feel better or changed the way that we feel or had an impact on us or made us feel nothing at all because we didn't want to feel anything. Right. So learning and figuring out like what's going on at a core level to help support the recovery phase, to help gain some skills that you can employ to learn how to live your life differently. Right. And so that then becomes what people refer to commonly as residential treatment or RTC. A lot of treatment programs offer like 30 day programs. Some offer 90 day programs because, you know, someone who has a history of chronic relapse may need to be in a longer um, treatment for residential. Um, Our philosophy at Positive Recovery Centers is, is that the longer you stay engaged in treatment at any level, the better the outcome is. And so we we measure outcomes in a variety of different ways. And, and one of them is um, a quality of life measure. 
-hmm. right? Like, is your life improving overall? Um, Because in that time that you're receiving services in treatment anywhere, you're also learning how to just kind of reclaim the life that you were intended to live, if you will. So the other piece about this uh, for me about addiction is that there's not a quick fix. I've never heard of one in just my little experience. There isn't one. This is a whole life kind of change that has to happen. And that whole life kind of change has to happen, not only for someone who's in their addiction, but it kind of has to happen for the the people around them, the other people in their home or in, in their relationships, that there isn't a, we're just going to nip this in the bud and be done by the end of the, I'll write a check. We'll be done by the end of the week. It's not, it, it, it in the way it goes. It's a long-term thing. It's long-term, it's a process and it's a journey and it is beautiful to see and watch it unfold in the person who is recovering and in their family. Like it is beautiful. You, uh, in a previous conversation, you mentioned like kind of the gifts of recovery and how Mm. sometimes people wonder like, how could there be a gift out of something that is just so devastating or feels so dark? But it is such a gift to see people reclaim their lives to find meaning to find purpose to you know be able to hold their head up high to experience joy and to and to flourish in their life and to see that with families and the reconciliation that can occur um, through the willingness to do the work that's a gift that is such a gift it is the we've had the privilege of having several people come on the show and share their stories and the stories are lives that are what I'm destroyed they're just destroyed they've lost their children they've estranged relationships with most family members they've maybe lost partners spouses you know they've lost children they're estranged from um and to and to see like you said that change come in um I think it's important for listeners to hear that that there's an other side that the first time I heard the phrase gifts of recovery I thought these people were crazy I mean this is insane how a a gift of this this is a mess it's a train wreck it's the most horrible place to be and you're telling me there's something good about it I just it's so hard to even recognize it as a possibility um does that make sense to you? I can't be the only one that thought yes, that. Yes, no, you are not the only one. And I will also tell you, um, you know, I've worked, You, oh, I, when I had to put that on my bio that I'm like, I've been doing this for like over 30 years. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm getting so old. <laughs> now, what I will say is that um, I am not in recovery. And a lot of people, you know, will say to me, like, why? Why did you choose to work in this area, right? And it's because of those gifts that, you know, I get to experience the gifts that people receive. And it is so generous and so giving to me to see a family heal, to see someone come into their full potential, to see someone be able to identify their strengths and be able to live their life um, in such a way that it brings others joy, right? And, and, And some of the kind of darkness that they experience becomes light. And so, you know, I have always, uh, since working in this space, kind of lived my life's re- re- kind of like based on the spiritual principles of recovery, right? Like very spiritually driven. Um, at positive recovery centers, we have a curriculum that we use that is all based in positive psychology. 
you know, kind of like looking for what's right, uh, rather than focusing on what's wrong. Like, look, it's not all like rainbows and puppy dog tails. We know how dark addiction can be, but like really trying to go at it from the perspective and the approach that within us, there is love in all of us. You know, Mm -hmm. no one wakes up and says, Hey, I want to be a heroin addict when I grow up, right? That is not where they started from. That is not where they want to end up. You know, there are very few people that want to start drugs and end their life that way. It happens. Um, But if you can get in there and get people to kind of reclaim their meaning, their purpose, it gives them so much more. And I think that's important because, you know, by the time people come into detox or into residential, which is inpatient treatment, they've lost hope. They Mm -hmm can't really even identify what their strengths are. They don't remember who they were before the substance, but they're in there and it's us, our job to welcome them back, right? And so um, living a life like according to those spiritual principles, you know, of honesty, of integrity, living your life according to the 12 steps, right? Like I always say um, the world would be such a better place if everyone subscribed to that way of thinking. Like when we wrong someone we took you know look at it went back and made our amends and said like hey could i have handled this differently and looked for ways to kind of grow together and and i you know own our stuff and be accountable like how amazing would that be if everyone did that and so when when people talk to me about like you know gifts of recovery some of the biggest gifts in my life are the people that are in recovery because they bring so much Yes. And the, um, and what I observe is that people in recovery are extremely generous with their recovery. They, they, they welcome others who are in this really dark place. Like you said, they can't even, their lives are being destroyed and they can't stop doing what they're doing. Nobody wants to destroy their life by using some substance. It's just a place they can't get out of. And I find that people in recovery tend to be just welcoming not only with the fact that look look I've been where you are I'm in a different place but also just with their time and their energy and their attention the opposite of addiction is connection with sitting sitting in that dark place with people and inviting them um to some place better and I I just have to say especially because you shared with us that you were not the person who was using you were a family member um it's the same for family members as well, that there are gifts of recovery, not only for people who are in the midst of their substance use, but there are gifts of recovery for families who get better, even if their qualifying person doesn't get better, mm-hmm. that um, families can be restored, relationships can be restored, even if we can't reach this person in their addiction at this moment. Um, I, one of the people that I met who was in recovery talked about he was getting better um, even though his loved one wasn't. And he talked about driving a truck through the only road through the forest and his beloved is lost in the forest, but he's going to make the lights on his truck really bright so that when his beloved is ready, he'll be able to find him that he'll be here. He'll be stronger. He'll be brighter. He'll be ready when, um, when his loved one, is ready. 
I loved that story. Uh, that's a beautiful um, way of saying that. And I just got goosebumps. <laughs> so it, yeah, um, it always makes we, me tear up. Yeah. We, we you know, we touched on, you know, services for treatment for inpatient, and that's not the only way to go about, you know, getting help for someone who needs care. Um, there's also outpatient services. What does um, that look like? Outpatient. Yeah. So, you know, depending upon the level of abuse, people may need support and guidance, but they may not need inpatient treatment. Um, and so there are programs uh, in, you know, all over the country, but we're talking about Houston that offer um, outpatient services. Many of them are group oriented. So there could be what's called partial hospitalization program or PHP or intensive outpatient, which is IOP. A lot of people talk about substance use disorder IOPs. Um, and, you know, during the pandemic, there actually was a lot more outpatient offices that were actually opening because, uh, you know, people were doing Zoom and telehealth. And, you know, so that is one of the gifts that we got from the pandemic was that we learned that we could still help people and treat people and, and doing it virtually, too, and, and, and having some success with that because we were still connecting with people. Um, and so outpatient services looks like like PHP generally meets four or five times a week for four or five hours a day. Um, and it's a group setting where you're doing some type of process oriented work. Um, there are, a, there's a treatment plan. There's things that you're working on with your counselor. Um, and it's a lot of the experience of the group. Now within that program of PHP, you also do individual work and there's usually a family component as well. Um, I'm speaking to um, Positive Recovery Center's PHP program because we incorporate family into everything that we do. Um, so maybe not all do, but I, you know, I believe it, that they should. Um, even with the intensive outpatient, usually those meet three times a week for about three hours each session. And that could be during the day. It could be in the evening. Lots of people work during the day and then go to these intensive outpatient programs in the evening, right? So they can do their work during the day, and then they can be in group in the evening. Um, each program generally has some type of um, screening process as part of, and when I talk about screening, I'm talking about toxicology screening. So we're doing mm -hmm. random urine toxicology to make sure that people aren't continuing to use substances or that they didn't change their substance, right? Because mm -hmm. sometimes that happens too. Um, you know, the person who used to drink now is, you know, could switch to something else that maybe may not be so noticeable to their family um, because that's just their way of, you know, kind of managing. So we have to monitor that very carefully. So that's yes. always part of a good outpatient program. Um, and outpatient programs um, generally can last anywhere from, you know, six to eight weeks, um, sometimes longer. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we have to sometimes battle the managed care companies yes. for insurance, insurance to reimburse. Oh my goodness. That's a whole nother show. Yes, it is. Um, but there is help for everyone out there. The council on recovery offers programs. There's free programs in Houston. Also, um, there's free programs for men who need detox. Um, one in deer park is called the wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. Um, for women, there is a free 10 day detox called the way out women's center. Um, in Houston and also New Hope is also another resource. Those are free programs for people who need help because sometimes we get so far into our addiction that we're also financially devastated. Yes. Or yes. maybe our families have put us into other programs 
um, or and paid lots of money and, and now no longer have the resources. And so, you know, I, I believe there's something out there for everyone. And we're we're blessed to live in Houston where yes. so, if you need help, you can get it. We're resource rich, I know, compared to other communities. Houston is. Um, our time is running out, Julie, but I want to make sure that we share uh, Puzzle Recovery Center's information. Can you, how can we reach you if we want to talk to you directly? If you want to talk to me directly, you can reach me at julie.denofa, D-E-N-O-F-A, at positiverecovery.com. Or you can call 877-476-2743. And someone in our admissions department will answer, but they will be happy if you ask for me to uh, get get a call over to me. Um, Positive Recovery Centers is a support and a resource as well. Someone calls in and needs help. Even if it's not with us, we're going to point you in the right direction to get what you need. Thank you so much for being here with this morning and for bringing and sharing your experience and wisdom. We never have enough time, even though our show is an hour now. So thanks for being here. Thank you to our listeners for listening. Remember to log on to kpft.org and give to keep us on the air. Um, I am Debbie Hall, wishing every mother and every mother's family a wonder-filled week. This is Pacifica Radio, KPFT, Houston.
why, oh why can't I?